Welcome to Traders Horizon, a podcast produced by Active Trades and presented by myself, Ricardo Evangelista. We invite guests with interesting views to share and remarkable stories to tell for conversations that cover a range of topics, including the financial markets, economics, geopolitics, entrepreneurship, and more. This week's guest is Arsalan Sied, a graduate in economics from the University of Houston, Texas, currently working as an analyst at S&P Global Platz. There, together with the carbon team, he is building their low-carbon oil price offerings. Before joining the carbon crew, Arsalan was part of the North American gas team with a primary focus on developing Mexico and Brazil. Prior to all that, our guest worked on the development of the world's first hydrogen assessment. Welcome to Traders Horizon, a podcast produced by Active Trades and presented by Ricardo Evangelista. Arsalan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ricardo. Thank you so much for having me today. Arsalan, for the benefit of our listeners, could you please elaborate on your current role? What does a low-carbon oil pricing analyst do? Yeah, sure thing. So, as you can imagine, uh, this role is, is very new to PLATS. Um, I just came in this role about six months ago as we really kicked things off in terms of energy transition. So specifically in the world of oil, oil, there's a lot of work that's being done to bring light to carbon and how that relates to the element of crude oil. So I want to take a little bit of a step back to, to really explain my role. As the market is getting used to carbon, we're beginning to talk about carbon intensity, and that's probably a word uh, that you've heard, where carbon intensity is starting to be looked at as an attribute attached to the crude. Similar to what we have with API, um, similar to what we have with sulfur, and both of those affect how heavy a crude is or how sweet or sour a crude is. Basically, the, the amount of emissions that are coming from a crude uh, are, are eventually going to affect the price of that crude. So the lower the emissions are or the lower the carbon intensity is, the higher premium that that can warrant. As you can probably imagine, as you can probably imagine, people are still wrapping their head around what this means, right? So in the role that I'm in currently, what we're actually doing is bringing more and more transparency to this space. So we're, we're, we're launching carbon intensities. We have for 84 crude fields, and we want to make sure that that number is growing to fields where that data is not as transparent. As a person in the market, whether you're an operator or whether you're a buyer on the refining side, you want to know the carbon intensity of crudes around the world. So as Platts, what we do is we bring transparency to the markets. And in my role specifically, we're bringing transparency to the world of carbon and how that's intertwining with the world of crude oil. Even though in my job title, I'm specifically covering carbon, 
a lot of these markets are developing so fast um, that I have my hand in, in a lot of what we're doing in terms of what we're doing for low carbon gas and the launch of methane performance certificates, which I can explain a little bit later, but also in terms of the, the carbon assessments that we have. So as you probably know, the voluntary carbon market is growing so fast. Just for context, in terms of price, when we first launched a carbon price at the beginning of the year, it was less than a dollar. And now that trades somewhere between seven to nine dollars on the given day. So anywhere from an 800 to 900 percent increase from the beginning of the year as more eyes start to look at it. So that was a long that was drawn out explanation of, of what I do. But I thought it was necessary because there's so much that goes into this role and, and bringing transparency to a space where there's just not much transparency yet. That was a brilliant, brilliant explanation. So thank you very much for making it so clear. Um, that's really interesting. So es essentially what you're saying is that um, in a few years, when we look at oil prices, we'll be looking at uh, perhaps two, three, four, five, six, ten different categories of oil um, with different prices, which will be determined by their carbon intensity. So, so the old classification of, say, uh, WTI brand, um, that, that will become a little bit more granular. Is that right? Or well, Yep, exactly. So when we talk to the market, that's what seems to be happening, um, especially uh, in the case where people are looking at carbon and carbon intensity very closely. If you're a buyer, let's say a refiner, and you're looking at your crude slate, so the crudes that go into your refinery, you want to make sure that wherever you're sourcing that crude from, that crude has the lowest emissions possible. So then that way, when it comes to your investor reports and everything that you're doing downstream, it has the lowest carbon possible as well. So you're going to be paying attention to that carbon intensity very, very closely uh, in terms of the, the crudes that, that you have. Just to talk about it a little bit more, as you can probably imagine, production Carbon intensity for production in the North Sea is, is very low relatively because a lot of that production process is electrified through renewable energy. Whereas if you look at places like uh, the Permian Basin, um, where there's a lot of flaring that occurs, wherever there's a lot of flaring or a high gas to oil ratio, that carbon intensity will tick up as well. So that's a number that not only operators are going to be cognizant of, but buyers are going to be cognizant of as well. And eventually, um, you know, this market's still developing. People are still getting used to carbon intensity. But as people get more and more used to it, it could be in two years, it could be in five years. But um, what we believe is there is going to be some pricing component to that. Interesting. So do you, do you think that eventually that will, um, that component will trickle down and, uh, and will also be a factor for, uh, say, market speculators, for traders? I, I would imagine, um, you know, right now we have the, the classic, we look at WTI and, and Brent, but it's possible that once that fully develops, the, the thing that really makes a market whole is when you look at futures contracts and everything working together, the spot price and the futures price. And when that eventually happens, it is possible that th there's a need for hedging, right? There's a need for speculators to come in. And at that point, that will be a factor in the market. Okay. Okay. I mean, it's a, it's, 
it's really one of the greatest events of of our lifetime for sure you know the the energy transition and uh, and what it will entail and uh, and the repercussion these changes will have uh, at all at all levels uh, socially politically economically etc et um i'm sure that you at least followed some of it uh, recently we had the the latest cop gathering uh, in uh, in scotland in glasgow and um, one of the conclusions that emerged from that gathering uh, was that the planet needs to become carbon neutral by 2050 uh, in order to reduce the impact of climate change down to a manageable level, let's say. Um, you spend quite a lot of time looking into these issues, and I'm sure you do a lot of research. Um, in your opinion, uh, is this target achievable? Are we heading in the right direction? What do you think? Yeah, that's that's a really good question and, and definitely a question that we get a lot and a question that everybody should be thinking of um, on a daily basis, whether you're an individual, a company, or when you're thinking uh, as a politician, as a country. So in short, um, IEA did, did a great report on the roadmap to net zero and and everything that, that's needed to, to happen to get there. In general, there's there's still a lot of obstacles, um, but there are also a lot of factors in favor. And in short, you know, it is possible, right? And the first thing that I'll say that that's working in favor is the speed to which how these markets are are developing. So the voluntary carbon market, for example, grew from a value of around seven hundred and fifty million in in August of this year to top one billion dollars just a couple months later, and is still growing. The obstacles, and which I think were really highlighted uh, in COP26, was that I think everyone struggles with the lack of decision-making and the frustration that comes with it, as the fossil fuel market is really a global market. Whether you look at oil, um, whether you look at things like LNG um, or, or different bunker fuels, it, in general, there has to be a dedication um, for more than just Europe or, or certain parts of Asia. And there has to be a global buy-in. And d this has been discussed a lot, but what's going to happen with developing countries? How will the developed world help the developing countries bring them into the energy transition? So a lot of this was discussed at top, COP26. Um, there was a lot of... A lot of uh, there was a lot of things that got us to a point where it is manageable, but I think that overall we need to, we need to keep the press the issue and keep on this course um, and continue to make improvements because there there has to be more things that that come to light um, for us to make it really possible. When you look at that roadmap to net zero, things like carbon capture and st carbon capture storage or direct air capture, which is a very very small piece of the pie right now but it's clear there needs to be more and more investment in this space um and more and more investment in things like hydrogen and, and renewable energy so we've gotten this far um we've taken a step we have some things that work in our favor just based on how these how fast these markets are growing um, but there needs to be global buy-in and you know that's what really is going to take us to the next level yeah i mean i agree with you i think that um, there's still some forces at work that are trying to prevent 
this agenda from moving forward uh, because of uh, economic interests, political, geostrategic interests, etc. Um, you, yourself, you're based in um, in Texas. You're based in Houston, uh, a state that uh, over the last century or so uh, has had oil at the center of uh, of its economic activity. Um, as far as you can see, um, how how is Texas preparing for a future where oil is likely to be in less demand? In what do you think? Yeah. No, that's that's a really good question. So you're right. I'm based in Houston, but also I'm born and raised in Houston, and I've lived lived in Texas uh, much of my life, um, and I've been involved in, in in oil and gas much of my life as well. With with both of my parents working in oil and gas, me now working in the uh, energy industry. But what I didn't know growing up, and there's not a lot of uh, light shed on this, is that Texas is actually huge when it comes to renewable energy. Only second to a state like California, which if if you were to ask somebody that, that didn't know the fundamentals of renewable energy in the U.S., they would probably name uh, you know states on the West Coast that are the biggest in renewable energy, which, which they are. California is huge. Um, Oregon and Washington, but Texas is is up there and like I said is second only to California when it comes to renewable power generation. Um, specifically, it's the leader in, in wind generation. Um, if you've ever come to Texas and you've driven through West Texas or some of the rural parts, there's there's wind there's wind farms everywhere and there's it's very cheap to act it, the renewable energy is actually very cheap as well um that's why and, and this is off topic but um with cryptocurrency a lot of that bitcoin mining uh or cryptocurrency mining has actually moved from china um where it's since been banned to places like texas because of how cheap it is and the availability of renewable energy so there's whole cities now and whole towns um for example, just like 30 miles west of, of Austin, Texas, that have built have built the entire town up because of the mining operations that are moving there. And that that's a convert. Yeah, that's a conversation for another day. Um, but basically, not only is renewable energy huge, but from the market engagements that we've had um, with folks in Houston, it's clear that they have a goal in mind. And that's that's to learn about things in this space. And I think that's a first step in the right direction, whether it's low carbon oil, low carbon gas, um, hydrogen, and people are beginning to look at alternate options. So my hypothesis is that over time, um, Texas is still gonna be synonymous with energy. It may be a different kind of energy. It may not be oil and gas. It may be renewables or, or hydrogen, but even when you look at hydrogen, currently the, the biggest uh, demand for hydrogen is in the Gulf Coast of the U.S., so the Texas-Louisiana border. The reason that is is because the, our refining complex is built there, and, and hydrogen is used a lot in refining. Um, but they have the transportation already there. They have the hydrogen production there. So, you know, as the world looks at energy transition and looks at something like hydrogen as a viable solution, 
it's possible that, you know, Texas and Louisiana remain those hubs. We think about those two states as very oil and gas, but we may we may think about those things synonymous with energy, but maybe a different kind of energy. Hmm, interesting. I was asking I was asking that question specifically about uh, Texas, and um, I confess that your your answer uh, somehow surprised me. I I wasn't expecting I wasn't expecting that. I I, I wasn't aware that um, you know uh, sustainably pr produced energy was 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 so so big in in Texas. I had no idea. I had no idea. So, uh, so that's already something very useful that I'll get as a takeaway from this conversation today. But I, w I was asking specifically about Texas because um, I could have asked more generally about the U.S. Because when I look into the U.S. from the outside, and I don't know the country very well at all. I visited once, so, so I have uh, very, very limited knowledge. Uh, it's all secondhand and watching from far away. But uh, I can sense that... Um, in some sectors, uh, a degree of resistance and uh, and downplaying of the real need to reduce carbon emissions uh, is happening uh, in the U.S. I, I mean, do you think that American politics uh, can influence the the way the energy transition unfolds, and 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 to what extent? Yep. Yeah, I mean, it, it for sure is a factor that, that affects how, how fast energy transition will happen. So what a government does uh, impacts a lot what happens, especially, you know, not only in developed markets, but in, in nascent markets as well. So, for example, and I've had many of these conversations, but when it comes to low carbon gas or gas that has lower methane emissions associated with it, and if the end user will pay a premium for this gas... So we've had a lot of these conversations as we've gone, gone through our methodology, um, as we've gone through market development. And when we talk to the end users um, or the local distribution companies for the natural gas, well, what they ask is, can we pass this cost on to our ratepayers um, or to their customers? And for that to happen, there has to be approval through a public utility commission for that state. So this is just one small example where essentially there's companies on both sides um, and one of the one of the companies, for example, a producer wants to produce like this, but then it has to wait for the end user. And the only way the end user will buy into this, if that cost is be able to move down the line or to the rate payers, but that's not possible in, in the current climate. So. It's, the, it's things like that where there has to be regulatory buy-in for it to make sense. There are countries on the side of like the likes of Microsoft and, and Amazon where in a voluntary market, um, they're taking part in lowering their emissions. But then there's the other side where regulatory involvement and the economic sense um, that, that causes resistance to look at things that lower their emissions overall and to invest in carbon markets further. Because of this, to your question, inherently politics, not only in America, um, but the world influenced the way energy transition unfolds. Um, and we, we had mentioned this uh, a couple questions ago, but you know the economic sense of things, um, a lot of the ways that still um, drives decision-making. 
So regulatory involvement sometimes helps when it comes to that, whether it's a carbon tax, um, whether it's uh, subsidies based on lowering your emissions, things like that are going to help us move in that right direction. And, and I don't blame them. If you're, if you're a company, um, at the end of the day, you're, you're, you worry about your revenue and you worry about profits. And in an environment where it might be much more expensive to lower your emissions, um, it might be something that that you wait on. So, um, in like in short, inherently, those things are intertwined. What politics does, uh, what the regulatory framework does, and how we move these markets and how we lower emissions. Mm. I mean that that makes sense. Um, my question was also along the lines of whether or not. Uh, the U.S. is still the the world's leading power. Are, is the country doing enough to 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 promote the rising of this topic to the top of the of the discussion agenda of the global discussion agenda, or do you think that the the fragmentation in well not the fragmentation but the polarization in politics that we are seeing all across the, the globe, unfortunately, uh, which is particularly visible in the US. And do you think that um, this issue is being, is one of the defining uh, issues that, that marks the frontier between the two sides? Uh, or do you, do you think that that could, to some extent, uh, threaten or slow down the progress of, uh, of this agenda or, or not? So that's, yeah, no, and, and that's a really good question. And it's definitely one of the things in the U.S. that is a constant talking point um, when it comes to politics. So uh, Biden, who just came into office, one of his big things was looking at cl the climate and looking at climate change and what we can do as a country um, to lower our carbon dioxide emissions. Since he's come into office, um, and, and I'm not a political whiz of, of, of any sort, um, but it's clear that there hasn't been policies put into place to help us get in, in that direction. So at COP26, there was this big announcement on methane and, and methane emissions. And it's true. When you look at methane, um, it's, it's actually worse than carbon dioxide in terms of the greenhouse gas effects uh, of methane. So it's right to focus on methane especially when we have things like the Permian Basin and the Bakken Basin, which is in North Dakota, both which is very high flaring. So in terms of the direction set out, um, you know, we're headed in the right direction, but there hasn't been concrete things put into place to help us get there. So it's clear we're looking the right way, but we haven't taken any steps in, a regu in the regulatory framework to actually get us to the, to the finish line. And it's always tough. So, um, you know, in, in three years now, we'll, we'll have a new election. And, and basically, let's say somebody from the Republican Party comes in. Um, it's, it's possible that we're going to retract on all of that. Um, and, you know, we'll start approving natural gas pipelines and, and oil production in places like Alaska. Um, so things like the, the flip, the flipping of... Um, the flipping of the government in terms of when we went from Obama to Trump and then Trump from Biden, inherently that slows down at whatever goal you're trying to get at because one one of them is just trying to undo what the other did, right? So um, it's clear, you know, over the last couple of months, we're definitely looking in the right direction. As I mentioned at COP26, they made the announcement that methane was going to be a focus. 
Um, and when we've talked to companies, it's clear that they do want to lower their methane emissions. When we talk to natural gas producers here um, in the U.S., but it's going to be interesting to see what actually happens or what, what comes into place. Well, let's leave politics behind us and uh, and focus on the on the markets. Uh, so most of our listeners are interested in trading and in the financial markets. And um, one of the star performers of the year, um, at least in Europe, has been um, carbon. So so carbon prices this year have risen in a spectacular way. The the EU uh, backed scheme saw prices um, of its uh, carbon licenses climbing from. I think it was 33 euros at the beginning of the year to to a maximum of uh, almost 90 euros or 89 euros. Um, Arsalan, what are the fundamentals behind this rise? Yeah, yeah. Now this has been a really really interesting market um, to look at over the past year. So not only the EU based scheme, but then the UK UK as well. Um, both have been both have been on the rise and the main dynamic that we've been really really keeping on our eye on is global gas prices right um specifically in europe we are looking at ttf and and the gas shortage that's happening but because of the european gas shortage we're seeing an increase in gas prices globally um we've taken they've taken their their step uh the pedal off the, the the metal a little bit um, when you've looked at the last couple of weeks, but even in the U.S., gas prices were very high. Um, inherently, when European gas prices are high, uh, North Asia is competing with Europe as well to get that LNG. So then, North Asian JKM prices uh, move higher as well. So, for example, in Europe, the TTF price, it, it, and I'll and I'll say this to compare. Um, but it was $42 per MMBTU um, when you're looking at December 15th. Just for comparison, Henry Hub, which is the U.S. natural gas uh, hub, trades around $3.80. So in addition, you know, this winter's first cold spell it was forecast at, at, in late November. Um, and we saw at the same time a lull in, in wind generation in mid-November as well, which boosted demand for fossil fuel generation. And when you turn to things like coal in times of uh, high prices for gas, that's also going to boost um, EUA certificates, especially from utilities. So it's so interesting to look at these markets because everything works together, right? And it seems like this was kind of a perfect storm. Because not only do you have the European gas shortage, um, but at the same time, 
because of coronavirus, um, we had lower natural gas production, and, and I'm speaking for the U.S., but because of that and, and elsewhere as well. So you had, you had TTF and JKM, uh, which is the North Asian LNG benchmark, fighting for supply. And when you're fighting for supply, the, the highest price always wins, which is why we saw the, this crazy ramp up in prices, not only for Europe, uh, but for North Asia as well, and then how the knock-on effects of, of carbon. So it's been really, really interesting watching these markets, um, especially from a Platt's point of view. Um, maybe if we were involved in the markets, I wouldn't say it's as fun, but just just because of just because of how, how crazy it's been, and really it's been... Um, fun to keep track of the fundamentals that are happening and how interconnected everything is. Um, you know, that's that's de- definitely one that we've been keeping our eye on. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it's been quite interesting in Europe as well, where you have um, another factor uh, that that uh, builds into this com- complexity, which is the geostrategic factor now with the growing intention um, with Russia, and uh, and Russia obviously being the the main. A supply of uh, for Europe in terms of natural gas, and they've been apparently holding back or holding yeah. some of the production to to put pressure on Europe to to get that pipeline uh, approved and and to gain some political leverage as well. Because they anyway, there's all sorts of things that play into it. But you you mentioned there as well an increase in the in the demand for uh, coal, which. Re, uh, resulted from the scarcity of natural gas and um, before we started this uh, recording this podcast we had a brief chat and I told you I'm from Portugal and it's one of the things that I'm um, most proud recently about uh, about Portugal is that we we shut down the the last the last energy producing central uh, using coal so we don't use coal anymore uh, so, so that's a that's a great step uh, in the in the right direction, I guess. But going back, going back to our um, to our chat about what's going on in the markets, um, looking looking from a trader's perspective, uh, what would you say um, are the correlations to have in mind between? Uh, the traditionally traded commodities and carbon licenses, if there are any, of course. Yeah, no, and that's that's a really good question. So, for example, we talked about the EU trading scheme and the price of gas in Europe, which we've seen are highly correlated, especially in the last few months. And it, I think what we think about is in a world where oil companies around the world are heavily involved in the carbon market, you can expect to see a similar thing when looking at the price of Brent or looking at the price of WTI. So as oil price, as oil production increases to catch these prices, let's say Brent and, and WTI are very high, so operators are trying to max out their production. If, if these operators are very eventually very evolved in the carbon markets, whether that's through the voluntary carbon market or whether that's through compliance schemes that come up from a regulatory perspective, there's going to be an increase in the demand for those carbon offsets, right? Because as an oil producer is, is, is producing more oil, taking more oil out of the ground, those emissions are increasing. So you have to turn to the carbon market to offset those emissions. So we've seen it in Europe um, because, as you as you know, Ricardo, Europe is very advanced when it comes to thinking about carbon and thinking about emissions. 
and how to lower those. So the EU ETS, which is the largest you know scheme in the world, um, which is very correlated with with the price of natural gas, we haven't seen a similar thing in the global markets happen just yet. Um, but what we can expect is, like I said, once we see once we see that clear connection, there's gonna be an uh, inherent correlation between the price of these existing commodities. For example, you look at the NYMEX Henry Hub in the U.S. You look at WTI or Brent. As producers start chasing these prices and try to increase their output, they're gonna have to turn to these carbon markets. So we haven't seen a correlation just yet. But it's the expectation that we can see these markets as the marriage of carbon and existing commodities gets, you know, even deeper. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, something else that has also risen to the top of the of the agenda recently, when it comes to making trading decisions, are uh, um, is uh, ESG. So focus on ESG is growing. And uh, these concerns uh, play an increasingly central uh, role for for many investors when it comes to making those decisions. Um, Arsalan, in your view, how are the financial markets uh, adapting to this new paradigm? I mean, are there any new market mechanisms that extract value from lower emissions, for example? And uh, and if so, uh, what are they? Yeah, no, that, that, that's a really good question. And, I, and I'll touch on an example that, um, that I've been very, very heavily involved in and that, that I look at on, on a daily basis. So um, as we talk to, to, play, to players in the market, um, specifically oil producers, what they want to do is even currently they want to include, and I talked about this a little bit, they want to include carbon intensity um, into their offers into the market. As, as a seller. So the example is, you know, let's say a, a producer in the Permian Basin, they want to show in the offer um, that they list that they have a carbon intensity, let's say lower than the average in the market. So let's say the average carbon intensity for a Permian producer, and I'm just making up a number, but it's 20 kilograms of CO2 equivalent per barrel. Let's say they want to show that their their the their production has a carbon intensity of ten kilograms of CO two. Based on that lower carbon intensity, they want to ask a premium to then what the rest of the market is selling their crude at, right? And we're seeing this dynamic take place. Where not only are we seeing that from a producer side, but then end users as well are looking at the market and they're willing to pay a premium based on barrels that have a lower carbon intensity. So that's one of the things. Um, the other thing that we've done is we've we've launched the methodology for uh, methane performance certificates. So at the start, this is only in U.S. and Canada, but it's an approach that be, that can be taken anywhere in the world. What it basically is is it's looking instead of carbon intensity, you're looking at methane intensity. So if a producer is underneath a set threshold of methane intensity based on how much underneath that threshold they are they're going to be minted what we're calling methane performance certificates what they can do with that is they can take those certificates to the market and they can actually sell those certificates to either end users that use natural gas or let's say producers that don't fall underneath that threshold and they want to lower their methane emissions so it's things like these that are popping up whether it's methane performance certificates, looking at carbon intensity, 
But the, the thing that brings this all together is trying to extract value from having low emissions, whether that's in the world of methane, whether that's in the world of crude, um, you know, even even things like like hydrogen. And, and I know we'll talk about this a, a little later, but looking at blue hydrogen and, and green hydrogen and those different colors that, you know, based on how it's produced, based on the lower emissions associated with it, you can get some sort of premium. So it's really about extracting that value. Um, and if it's something that buyers will pay for um, or pay a premium for in terms of lower emissions, then it's something that the, the producer side of things or the operator side of things really wants to be in. So um, it's interesting. A lot of these like methane performance certificates that we launched, um, it's been a couple months now and it's nascent, but at the same time, we're seeing more and more interest, uh, more and more people actually mint these certificates from a from an operator standpoint and then take them to the marketplace to try to sell them. Um, we've heard a couple deals as well in methane performance certificates. So it's clear that, you know, markets like these do have some sort of momentum as you know, you turn on the you turn on uh, the news, or you think about energy, and you can't not think about energy transition. It, it's come to that point. So I think you know everybody's kind of in that mindset. Mm. Just out of curiosity, um, you mentioned there that uh, there's been a couple of deals involving uh, methane uh, performance certificates. Um, how how much do those trade for, or, or did they trade for? Yeah, no, th that's that's a really good question. So. They trade for um, around four and a half cents per MPC, but uh, and I'll convert it to metric tons of CO two equivalent. But they're uh, I believe around seven dollars per metric ton of CO two equivalent. So basically, this is less than um, this is less than what the Corsia eligible credits trade for. Um, so people can do that apples to apples comparison where if they want to lower their emissions, they have a bunch of options of, you know, things that will get them there. And one of the options is MPCs, um, which is which, like I said, is priced at seven dollars per metric ton, um, which does the same job as looking at the Corsia eligible credits. But since it's so new, people are still familiarizing themselves with how does the minting process work? Um, you know, how, how does a producer fit in this scheme and, 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 and all of that. And it's one of those things that definitely the market is going to work out. Um, but it, it's good to see interest in market mechanisms like this growing because at the end of the day, what it's doing is um, at the end of the day, it is lowering emissions because if you're a producer that, that doesn't fit this methane intensity threshold, you're going to do what you can in terms of your upstream production process to get underneath that threshold so you can be eligible to have these certificates minted, sell them in the marketplace, and then, um, you know, extract that value and, and actual revenue from that. So um, it's in the works, but we're um, like many things in, in this you know market moving very fast and headed in the right direction. Mm. And and and. Are those MPCs traded in uh, in some exchange at the moment? I mean, are, are they exchange traded already or or not yet? Yeah, so currently they trade on uh, CBL markets, expansive, which which has a lot of these th these different products in terms of environmental products. Um, but even though the MPC is minted through expansive, it can be traded bilaterally. Um, it can be traded on on any other exchange. But that's where we've really seen uh, interest as of now.
Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you mentioned there um, hydrogen, uh, green hydrogen, blue hydrogen. Um, what role do you see hydrogen playing in the energy transition? Yeah, hydrogen is going to be huge when it comes to energy transition. And this is a really interesting one because you you can't really read anything about energy transition without coming across hydrogen. Right. It's one of those things that everybody wants to talk about. And, um, you know, everybody wants to talk about for good reason, because it's such a viable solution when it comes to um, the energy transition in general. So personally, I've seen the growth in hydrogen over the years. Um, You know, in 2019, I was involved in launching the first hydrogen price assessment ever. Um, And I remember talking to the market back then um, as we were getting ready to launch this hydrogen price. And, you know, some people in the market never saw it getting to this level. They thought, oh, hydrogen is just a fad. Um, It's going to go away. But it's clear now sitting here at the end of 2021, um, you know, going into the holidays, almost 2022, that, you know, it's it's something that's here to say, stay, and it's something that's actually a viable solution. Mm. So it's been I mean, great. Go ahead. No, I was just going uh, to say that there's been, um, there's been a lot of discussions surrounding hydrogen, and there's almost... Uh, two fields there's there's those that support hydrogen and see its potential and there's the field of the the ones that are against it and perhaps a little bit cynically say that hydrogen actually uh, generates uh, more emissions uh, than than other other sources of energy i mean what i was wondering if you have a view on this and 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 what is the balanced view between these two sides yeah So I'll say that definitely um, hydrogen has the potential to actually cause emissions, right? Really, you want to think about things that hydrogen is produced in in, in two ways. The first is steam methane reforming. um, And this is hydrogen produced through natural gas. And when you look at the hydrogen production now, um, hydrogen is used a lot in industrial uses. Like I said, in the refining complex, it's, it's used. Um, most of that 90% of hydrogen produced today is produced through through natural gas or, you know, the, the term gray hydrogen is, is thrown around. We like to stay away from the colors because it gets a little confusing, but that's how the market refers to hydrogen produced through natural gas. If that hydrogen is produced through natural gas and then that carbon is that's emitted is then captured, carbon capture and storage is on site then we call that blue hydrogen. Um, And in that way, those emissions aren't released and then hydrogen is produced. But really the the way that people look at hydrogen as a viable solution and the way that it's going to get there is what we call green hydrogen. So this is hydrogen produced through a process of electrolysis. And to put it in basic terms, what you do is basically you have uh, an electrolyzer and you have water, H2O. What you basically do is electrify that water, um, and it's much more complicated than, I'm, what, what, than what I'm making it sound like, but you electrify that water and that separates the hydrogen and the oxygen. So the only byproduct you have in this is the oxygen, which is then released, right? That hydrogen can be stored in in caverns similar to natural gas. Those natural gas caverns have to be retrofitted because of the different pressures and um, 
you know, hydrogen weighs, weighs much less than natural gas. And, you know, there's a possibility that it can be used in natural gas pipelines as well. Um, so all of these possibilities with storage, um, you know, basically taking excess renewable energy, specifically in Texas, you know, when, when we have that excess renewable energy, instead of grounding that electricity and actually making hydrogen out of it, then that can be stored and that defeats the problem of battery storage that we have now. In that, it is a viable solution. So, you know, it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to be the, the full answer when it comes to energy transition. But what I like to think about it as is energy transition is this huge, huge puzzle, right? And there's a lot of different pieces. And essentially, we cannot, we cannot complete the puzzle without hydrogen because it's a key puzzle piece when it comes to everything that we're talking about. So, of course, time will tell in terms of how, how hydrogen is really, you know, is really going to take off. But just in the years that I've been looking at it since the beginning of, you know, very few people were talking about hydrogen um, to now where you cannot read about energy transition without talking about hydrogen and they're working on things like transportation of hydrogen specifically looking at things as ammonia as a carrier and, and building ships that are able to transport hydrogen looking at the existing framework of hydrogen pipelines that exist how to ref retrofit natural gas pipelines and natural gas storage all of these things um, they don't you don't need to recreate the wheel to place hydrogen um, in a place where natural gas is. But, you know, it's clear it's going to take more and more investment when it comes to electrolyzer technology, because at the end of the day, like many of the things that we've talked about, it has to make economic sense. So once that green hydrogen is, you know, competitive to some of the other fuels, um, as there's more and more investment in this space, um, you know, we can really see hydrogen be, you know, a key piece of what we're calling energy transition. No, I totally, I totally get what you're saying there. I mean, um, green hydrogen uh, produced using uh, renewable energy. Uh, it's a great way to, to create storage for that renewable energy almost. Exactly. Not, not for the energy itself, but for a you know, a byproduct of a process that uses it. So uh, no, I, I, I mean, I, I think I think it sounds it sounds like there's a lot of future in uh, in hydrogen. Uh, but thank you very much for for clarifying that that point. Um, we are coming to the end of uh, of our conversation, uh, but before uh we we get there i would like to ask you for for some recommendations we always do this in the podcast uh it can be a book or books or a podcast etc um what did you read or listen to recently that impressed you and uh, and you would like to share with um with the listeners awesome yeah and and yeah thank you so much for for having me ricardo it's been it's been a really really uh nice conversation and um it's been you know thought provoking as well so some of the recommendations, I, I don't have any book recommendations, but as I work, I, I often listen to podcasts and two podcasts that come to mind. The first is called The Carbon Removal Show, um, which should be on the Apple podcast or, or Spotify, but it specifically talks about ways to remove carbon from the atmosphere and the ways that we can see future investment in. And then the other one um, is called Future Perfect, which talks about energy transition and talks about things on a more general scale, like things like how farming will fit into 
the future and, um, you know, what we'll do with, um, you know, cow manure or things like that. So if you're thinking about something in a, a less serious, you know, lighthearted fashion, then Future Perfect is, is the one for you. And you should, you should be able to find both of those and uh, uh, wherever you listen to your podcast. But yeah, Ricardo, thank you so much for, for having me today. It's been a real pleasure to be with you. Arsalan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Of course. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Arsalan Sied. Traders Horizon will be back in two weeks with another guest. If you enjoy the show, do subscribe and share it with your friends. My name is Ricardo Evangelista. I hope you all have a great weekend. You've been listening to Traders Horizon, a podcast produced by Active Trades and presented by Ricardo Evangelista.